You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin our proceedings here today by calling in the helping spirits. I call out first to my ancestors, to your ancestors, to all of those people who have gone before us, on whose shoulders we stand. I call out to these ancestors, those who lived well and died well and met the challenges of their time in ways that brought forward their own gifts in a way that turned them into the men and the women they weren't even sure they could be, that brought forward innovation and courage and called them out to become precisely what they were dreamt up to be. And I ask these ancestors to gather around us here today to encourage us to do the same, to rise to the amazing challenges of our own time and to bring forward our gifts and our ingenuity and our creativity to come together in a way that we become the medicine that our time is calling out for. And I call out to those non-human ancestors, those energies that were here long before anyone ever dreamt up a human and will most likely be here long after. I call out to these energies to be with us here today and to help us, the humans, to remember how to surrender to our own true nature, to understand what makes us unique and to bring that forward into the great web of life so that it can grow strong. And may all of these ancestors gather around us here today so that we, the living, can do what is necessary for those who are coming. And may may we remember that which stands behind us and that which stands in front of us and do what is needed right now in our own time in a way that is good for all living things. And as these ancestors gather around us here today, let us gather ourselves from wherever we might be, taking a nice deep breath and drawing our awareness into our mind and from our mind into our heart and from our heart into our belly. And take a moment and touch the earth. So much change, so much extremis, extreme weather, extreme events going on as the elements make themselves profoundly present in our lives all around this earth. Nonetheless, let us take a moment and give thanks for life. We give thanks for this day, for the wonder, for the great mystery, for the beauty, for the blessings and the challenges. All of these things are what make us whole. We give gratitude for the wonder of life itself. Take a nice deep breath. Feel that life moving through our bodies and send our gratitude for life down into the earth. Letting our love and gratitude for the earth pour out through all the layers of the earth as we go, reaching all the way down to the very center of the earth. And let us reach deeply into the core of the earth in that silence and stillness, in that darkness, Whether you see the center of the earth as a great molten fire or as a place of deep yin stillness, let us connect into that energy, that energy that is everything before it becomes the abundance here on the surface of the earth. There is that place within, that generative, gestating place within that nourishes, that replenishes, that revitalizes and renews. 
And so we reach deeply into that energy and draw it up, drawing it up into our body, into our belly, our heart and mind. And we invite the energy of the earth to help us to remember all the wisdom of manifestation, this great wisdom of the earth, how to be here in form in a good way. Let us use this energy to ground ourselves, to know where we stand and what we stand for. And let us build our sense of home around that. And let our home have a hearth, a place to gather. And let it create for us a sense of belonging to our ancestors and those who are coming. And let us do this in a way that is not tied to place or nation, but is something that we carry with us and do it in a way that we can open that door to the other, to those who are different than we are and those whose own ideas will challenge us to become the men and women we are really meant to be. So we call these energies in. We call them in and ask that the energies of the earth help us to understand connection and interconnection and ultimately to reach out through all the many, many layers of connection and awareness until we can touch into this great web of life and know our place in that oneness and take a sense of right relationship from that. And with that sense of place and belonging in our own hearts, let us reach our energy up and out, out through the tops of our heads, out into the sky in whatever weather it holds for you at this time, out through the atmosphere and all the way up in to the great wonders of the cosmos, out through all the heavenly bodies and the great mysteries and let yourself caress and be caressed by all that we do not yet know, reaching all the way out to the highest power of the universe and by whatever name you know this energy, by whatever way you conceive it, connect with it, see yourself in it and it in you and draw these radiant energies down. Drawing down into yourself, into your life, and into these, into these proceedings, all the wisdom of the cosmos, the great benevolence of this universe. We call down blessing. We call down protection. We call down generosity and commitment and devotion. We call into our lives inspiration and illumination. And we ask that we can find through these energies the mentors and the champions that we need along the way in our own lives. And may we become those mentors and champions that others need. So we call these energies in, into our head, into our heart, into our belly. And we send this energy from above all the way down to the center of the earth. And in this way, we have connected heaven and earth, the two great lovers. And we ask that the big love of these two Awaken the spirit of our own heart and that our own heart come alive in the big love of these two great legendary lovers, those who gave birth to all of this experience of form that we all are sharing in this moment. And may the transformation of the heart open, that crucible of transformation become alive and call up the fiery passions of the belly and call down the crystal clarity of the mind and may these two energies so different in their own nature come together in a great and passionate tango in the heart and may that dynamic tension of that dance give birth to the third and most important thing there in your heart which is your memory of why you are here that felt sense that feeling that understanding of the gifts that you bring and may you also find in that very same human heart the courage that you need to do something in this day large or small to bring your gifts into manifestation in the world and for all the assistance that we receive in this from all the many 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 helping spirits i give great gratitude
May what needs to be said be said here today, and what needs to be heard be heard, and may these proceedings go forward in a way that is good for all living things. I also want to thank you, the listeners, like Sarah and Elizabeth and Deborah, Darcy and William, and all the listeners who have been able to donate financially to the show. For those of you who are listening for the first time, this show is listener-supported, that there are bills that must be paid to keep the show free and available all around the world on the Internet to anyone who has the ability to get online. And the shows are free on iTunes and at whyshamanismnow.com and at cocreator-network.com. And for that to happen, bills must be paid. So I thank those of you that are helping me to do that. And for those of you that aren't able to donate financially, please know that there are many, many ways to exchange energy for the ways in which this show moves you. And if it moves you into inspiration or irritation, you have been moved in the heart. And I ask you to allow yourself to do that most fundamental of shamanic actions, which is to allow what moves your heart to motivate your actions in the world. This is not fluffy new age idea, but a very strong, powerful, and passionate idea that those things that matter to you, that truly move your heart, are the things that guide your actions in your life. And this is critically important, and it's the heart of shamanic teachings all around this globe. And so there are many things you can do through... um, Particularly bringing the teachings into your life, sharing them in your journey circles, um, creating a journey circle so that you can share them. But wrestling with these ideas, using them, seeing what happens, sharing what happens, asking questions, sending new show ideas, all of these things help to keep the show alive and available and here for others. And, And I say this often, but I'll say it again, that not a week goes by that someone doesn't send an email giving thanks to you, those of you who can donate financially because they are not able to at this time and yet finding what they have found in the shows is helping them to change their lives so someday they will be able to. So in this way, we as a community move the energy, exchange the energy and create something that is available for all of us. If you'd like to donate for the show, you can go to whyshamanismnow.com click on the support button, donate any amount, large or small, it all goes directly to keeping the show on the air and if you're uncomfortable with that, you can always email me at christina at lastmasscenter.org and I would be happy to give you a regular old address for a regular old check. So the uh, show today is live and our topic is shadow, sex, and shamanism. And our guest is Marsha Scarborough. Welcome, Marsha. Welcome. Uh, thank you, Christina. It's great to be here. You are so, um, I'm so happy you've been able to join us again. So for those of you who would like to call in, if you have a question about today's topic, you can call in at 512-772-1938. You can Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site or you can just email me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org and I could answer, uh, bring your question to the show. So with all that said, um, I'd like to introduce Marsha, who joins us today, to talk about her new book, Honey in the River. We have um, a show with Marsha in the archives with um, her prior book, Medicine Dance, and um, we want to talk today about Honey in the River, Shadow, Sex, and West African Spirituality. So for those of you that don't know, Marcia is a freelance journalist who's won over, who has over 75 articles published in national magazines such as TV Guide, Body and Soul, Natural Home and Garden, and Millimeter, which is a motion picture and television production magazine. So her first book, Medicine Dance, is one woman's healing journey in the world of Native American sweat lodges. 
um, drumming, meditations, and dance fast. And this was published back in 2007 and is a much awarded book. It's a beautiful book. And as I said, we already ha- we have a show with Marsha talking about this book. Along the way, Marsha has traveled with a Buddhist teacher, Joan Halifax, danced with movement guru, Gabrielle Roth, um, earned a brown belt in karate from a martial arts legend, legend um, participated in healing ceremonies um, in uh, North American, Native American practices, and produce workshops for a Nigerian master drummer. And she, Marsha, and her book can be found at her website, website, sorry, MarshaScarborough.com. And so let me spell, spell it, M-A-R-S-H-A-S-C-A-R-B-R-O-U-G-H.com. Um, and her new book actually is available um, May 29th. So just counting down the days. So if I got my days straight, so. I just got back from yes, a week-long workshop. and you workshop. can pre-order on Amazon now. So Lovely. Okay. Thank you, Marsha. So um, give us a quick, if you would please, Marsha, just give us a quick reminder of your journey with dance and spirituality and indigenous peoples that really brought you to a place where you could engage in the um, African spirituality so powerfully. So give us a quick review. I'm originally from Los Angeles. I lived there most of my life, and I was an assistant director in primetime television and major feature films. And around the time I was 40, everything in my life started to fall apart. My marriage was crumbling. My parents were dying. The career was starting to go downhill. And at that point, I had a bad mammogram. And... When you have that, then they tell you, okay, come back in two weeks for another one. And then after that, that's not conclusive. Can you come back in two weeks for the radiologist to consult? And that's not conclusive. Can you come back in two weeks for an ultrasound? And during that time, of course, I was filled with fear and really worried about my health. And someone said to me, there's a Native American medicine man in town doing private healings. And I said, sign me up. I didn't even particularly believe in it or relate to it, but it seemed like it was something I could do, something empowering. So I had a private healing with my teacher who uh, did what I later figured out was uh, energy work. And when I went back for that ultrasound, the problem was completely gone and they weren't even sure why I was there. So I became very interested in what he was doing in his Native American tradition and became involved with sweat lodges first and then dance. He used dance, drumming, uh, and chanting to heal. This was the main practice because you go into trance, you're in a deep hypnotic state listening to drumming, and you're moving the molecules that make us up. We're not Anything is not really solid matter. We know from quantum physics everything is just um, electrons vibrating at different rates. So you're impacting that. So I was studying with him, and this was in the 90s when Los Angeles uh, rose up after the police that were acquitted for beating Rodney King uh, after their trial, and the city was on fire. And I love Los Angeles. It's an amazingly diverse and interesting city, my home, and I thought, we really need to heal racism. And what can I do? And I realized that 
African people had been cut off from their indigenous spiritual practice in the same way that Native Americans had, and that Native Americans were beginning to empower themselves by reconnecting with their traditional ways, the sweat lodge, the pipe ceremony, the sun dance. And I thought African people must have this in their background, and what is it? We don't know anything about it. About a week later, I got a flyer for uh, a ceremony from a West African Baba Lao of the Yoruba tradition of Ifa, who had just arrived in Los Angeles. And that began my relationship with this teacher, Oba, the Ifa Baba Lao. Okay, and so this is really brings us then right to Honey in the River. And so this puts us in the world of Ifa, which is a spiritual tradition of the Yoruba people of West Africa. And as you explain really beautifully in the book, um, that this is very much a lived spiritual practice versus a faith-based practice. And Ifa is, is a focused spiritual practice. It's not magic. It's an ancient technology for healing people and communities. And this technology heals through complex combinations of rhythm, vibration, um, a cosmology that involves psychological archetypes. There are, it has its own sense of working with herbal remedies and and a direct connection to the primal energies of nature because the archetypes um, in the cosmology also have um, elemental relationships. And so there's the drumming and the dancing and the chanting are all various forms of prayer. And the rhythms are these very sacred vibrations coded to create the healing. So it's an ancient and complex technology. It's not just um, like when you happen across 12 guys drumming in the park on Sunday. <laughs> right. It's, it's a whole yeah. world. But to me, part of what was so attractive what, is that the, the main technology for moving energy is drumming, dance, and chanting, which was so similar to my Native American mm-hmm. teacher. And so I, it, it was like really in my wheelhouse. So was this what you really loved about it? I mean, what what really just caught you in the beginning? um, Because it's like you already had a rich spiritual practice. So what really caught you in the beginning with this? Well, partly the joyful nature of the the drum and dance and very high energy. The the rhythms are completely different from Native American rhythms. And so it's a, a, a very, very fun and high uh, energy dance practice. Um, also, just because it w- was so unknown, we know so little about it, white people in America. I mean, in uh, uh, Cuba, they know it in a, as Santeria. In Brazil, they know it as Candomblé. But we really know nothing of it. And that there was a whole mythology that we didn't know that I think is equal to Greek mythology and preceded Greek mythology by a couple thousand years. So all of those things I found quite attractive and fascinating. So as it, since it is a, really a shamanic practice, it has this cosmology has um, not a creator, but an energy of creation. You want to talk about that a little bit and then how that moves into the Orishas? So Oludumare is the energy of creation, maybe something like our idea of God, although that's... He, it is not personified, but it is the overarching creative intelligence that made the world. Um, between Oludomari and humans 
are intermediaries that are called Orishas. And Orishas were uh, historic personages in the distant, distant past, but they ascended to divine status after their deaths. Um, each one has a certain area of energy that it, it uh, works with, but it's also a natural element. So Oshun, who is the Orisha of love and eroticism, is also the river. So these Orishas become the messengers and the intermediaries between human beings and the overarching creative force of Olodumare. And so these and these Orishas, um, in a sense, they carry the the code of different archetypes and the um, and what can happen both in the light and in the shadow when these archetypes begin to engage with each other through humans. Which brings exactly. us exactly, and they. <laughs> Well, and the other really interesting thing to me is that the, the teachers and the practitioners recognize them as archetypes. Um, they don't take this really literally. They know that this is metaphor, and they recognize these archetypal energies, like Oshun is the sort of uh, mistress Aphrodite. Uh, Shango throws sun- thunderbolts. He's the judge, the righteous one. He's fire, uh, thunder, and lightning. But they recognize them in the same sense that Jung does, even though they may not, you know, be Jungian psychologists or even know who Jung is. They use the archetypes in the same way that Jung does to explain and balance human complexity. Yeah. So I thought that was a very sophisticated idea and approach to the religion. And that was another thing that was really attractive to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then within that, because it is. It, it is very similar, as you said, to other understandings of working with archetypes. There is also the shadow aspect of it. And that's what's another thing that I found so interesting. So the first Arisha that you work with is Eshu. Eshu is the trickster. Uh, and there's another version of Eshu called Elegba that is the, the shadow of the community. And Eshu is the shadow of the individual. And so in this mythology, it says that Eshu lives behind our head, and he pushes us into self-sabotaging behavior. He makes us make mistakes. So he's back there, and we can't can't see him. We don't see that part of ourselves, the shadow, the hidden things, the weaknesses that we don't want to admit. So the first um, thing in any ceremony is calling out Eshu with a a chant, and then honoring him with offerings. And then once we have brought him out in front of our face and acknowledged him, he becomes the messenger between humans and the other Orishas. So just right there, you know, shadow is the first thing. And I was just recently in Brazil with a teacher, and she said, uh, without Eshu, there's nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... So part of what I want to get into before we get into the actual story is just really talking about how beautiful and life-affirming and joyful and community healing this um, spiritual practice is. And partly because it is openly acknowledging our personal shadow, that we can have communal shadows and inviting that energy out in front of our face, you know, into the light before we begin 
our work together. And then I also want to point out for many people, because especially in America, shamanism tends to lean into this journey, journey, journey all the time manifestation of shamanism. And I don't know how many people are shaman nerds like I am and and read a lot of the writings, but a lot of the old writings literally say that you know, journeying shamanism is this high form, classical form of shamanism and that those other forms of shamanism that use dance and embodiment are some sort of degenerate shamanism. And that's bullshit. <laughs> I mean, that is just white, Eurocentric, academic nonsense that our capacity to journey and go there, basically, and our capacity invite to invite the spirits to come here are equal and balanced aspects of shamanism. They may be two bookends on the shelf in their in their difference, but they there there are as many uh, peoples practicing shamanism that focuses more on embodiment trance states than there than as there are that focus on journeying. And and to to um, it's 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 effectively another form of racism to denigrate forms of shamanism simply because they focus on embodiment versus focusing on journeying. And I and this is one of the things that I tried to bring out in the encyclopedia and I try to bring out on the show um, is that that embodying our helping spirits is a critical aspect of understanding shamanic work and there is a distinct difference between um, ifa and this intentional creation of a space you know we invite the shadow out into the light we invite trickster into um, his role as the messenger between the humans and the other archetypes and then we and we begin you know and we begin to do the sacred work and we invite the spirits in to dance us that this is a powerful and traditional aspect of shamanism and it is a way that we learn and grow with our helping spirits and there it's just actually honestly harder to teach people to do well than journeying (laughs) but what's really another aspect that i think is really important is the uh teaching that we all have all the orishas within us the orishas are in us and in nifa they say there are 400 orishas and maybe we work with, you know, 10 of them a lot. But uh, the point is that we need to balance all these different energies. The human beings are complex with many archetypes to work with. And part of the practice of Ifa is, is getting facility with these various archetypes to call whatever we need forward when we need it. Because to so dance... You will, your, your teacher, your diviner... We'll throw shells and read them and and tell you which Orisha is your head, the one that is dominant in you, but they're all in you. And so the one that's controlling everything is maybe throwing things out of balance. And so you might want to do a ceremony to draw another energy up to put you more into balance to make it easier for you to make your way in the world. And dancing an energy that is unfamiliar to you is one of the most direct ways to come to understand that energy more fully. It is much quicker than trying to do it through your head. Believe me. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So just for those of you that aren't quite tracking with us, so one of the quotes from the books is, when we dance, 
uh, we enter trance. And when we are in that state, one of the Orishas may merge its energy with ours and ride us. Now, the important thing for you all to understand is get your heads out of Hollywood, get them out of the movies, and understand that when we do that on purpose, especially in a sacred way, that we are inviting an embodiment trance state. It is not a possession, which it is often called, even in the text. Possession is an unintentional state in which the person who is possessed doesn't have control. And in a, a sacred practice of embodiment it, it moves through a person's choice. You're choosing to step into the circle to, to call out and to dance and to learn from that. It's a very different experience, particularly for those of you who have, who have actually had the unfortunate experience of being possessed. That, that these are two things are very, very different. And so as we go forward and continue to talk about Marsha's journey here today, I, I would like for people to begin to really open their minds to understand that embodiment is a very powerful and very important aspect of shamanic practice. And if you are not capable of fully and intentionally embodying your own helping spirits and you're practicing shamanism, you need to think again. Because the ability to embody your helping spirits in a good way is a fundamental step in stepping forward as a shamanic practitioner. So what I, what I just wanted to take this first part of the show to do is to really talk about the uniqueness of this, of this beautiful spiritual practice and just to, to help people understand that it's moving through dance and rhythm and embodiment and, and truly educating yourself and understanding this cosmology and understanding that cosmology through dancing it, through ritual, through working with it, through learning about it, but not necessarily through sitting around reading books about it. Right. I mean, even though we are talking about a book today, <laughs> but, but I just, you know, I well, and people... the book is is really the story of my personal experience with it. Uh, right. You know, it's not a, a textbook about Ifa. It's, I say, archetypal drama and epic soap opera. Right. So in the mythology of the Orishas, there's all these human behaviors like adultery and lust and betrayal and love and uh, helping and compassion. But as I moved through my journey, I realized that my personal journey was reflecting the archetypal drama of the Orishas. And that was one of the reasons I wrote the book. Like, there's really two stories here that are related to each other, um, and they're worth telling. Yes. Okay. And so now, part of the reason, or the main reason that I've really invited Marcia to come and talk about this book and her journey on through this path is because one, it's a great opportunity for people to have a connection into Ifa who don't because it is a beautiful spiritual practice and it is not, and I want to say really directly, it is not any more inclined to the kind of issues around shadow and sex and issues around integrity than any other anything any other spiritual practice, any other group of people gathered anywhere about anything, do this. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is where I'm not at all drawing a direct line between Ifa and shadow and sex. We're just saying from in Marsha's experience, this happens to be a place where she was able to enter into these issues and look at them consciously. So that's one thing that I want to say. But the other reason is this issue 
which happens all over the place, which is issues of um, shadow and sex and appropriate and inappropriate and integrity and lack of integrity in spiritual communities happens all over all the time with male and female sort of conductors of those communities. And I find that the conversations about that are really lame and don't help us understand how to go forward in a different way. And what I really like about Marsha's book is that she's talking about really, you know, sweaty, lustful, (laughs) you know, sexual experiences (laughs) in which no one is a victim. And if we can't have this conversation making someone the obvious bad guy or bad girl and everybody else was completely you know the powerless victim in the dynamic we're not having this conversation because that's not what's going on you know other than a couple characters in Marsha's story everybody in the book's a grown-up everybody in the book's making choices and everybody in the book is as conscious as they're choosing to be and until we can have that conversation on that playing field we're not going to be having an intelligent conversation because making somebody out to be someone who is human out to be the 100% bad guy, a whole bunch of other human people who are just as capable of playing into their own shadows, right? You know, the, the hapless victims who had no power, you know, continues to play into the type that women can't choose when they want to have sex and who they want to have it with and they can't enjoy having it when they do. So, and I don't want to propagate that. So, so this is what partly what I like about the book is you're, you're willing to acknowledge that some of your choices might have been questionable, but, but it, to acknowledge the bottom line is it's there and it's moving us and it's our choice, not only the relationship we want to have with the people in our lives, but the choice we want to have with the shadow in our life because we have it. The question is, what relationship do we want to have with it? And part of the beauty of Ifa is it does give people a means by which to have a conscious relationship with their shadow if they choose to. So, exactly. So. And also that there is a lot of complexity here. These aren't easy choices or even easy to see exactly what's going on. It can be very confusing. And that's well, part of the work. That's part of the dance. That's part exactly. of the chaos of it. And this is one of the things I don't think people fully appreciate about shamanism in general is shamanism is really an enormous celebration of life when you are truly practicing, not intellectually practicing and keeping it in your mind, but when you are living an embodied shamanic life, it is an enormous celebration of life. And 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 I learned this really the hard way. There were a couple years in a row that I was effectively the village shaman at the Omega Institute over the summer. And I was there, you know, all the time, all day, every day, seeing enormous numbers of clients and really found myself just infused with the life force, the way you are after a dance ritual, after a day of working with spirit with all these different people, and just just hungry to enjoy all the great beauties and pleasures of life. And it was an enormously sexual time, and in a sense, frustrating, because I didn't really have an outlet for that, <laughs> and didn't, didn't yet understand how to dive it into my own Taoistic sexual practices, because I didn't know them yet. And, and so... 
you know, this is another layer of complexity that gets added into any spirituality that is a true and full celebration of life is it has a big sexual stirring in it because, you know, there's nothing more fundamental to life than creating it. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, you're in ceremony and you're sort of covered with this shimmery glow of the life force moving through you and you see it on everyone else. And it is a, you know, drug, a very kind of magical altered state that you're in. And people are gorgeous when they're in their power. When they're all Absolutely. filled with spirit from dancing and rhythm and, and being in sacred space and the whole space is gathered and filled with spirits, humans are gorgeous. Spirits are gorgeous. Everything's beautiful. I mean, it's just really, you know, to then go, oh, well, let me turn off this switch, you know, <laughs> pretend yeah, I'm not or a say it's bad. You know, it's, a, it's, you know, to demonize it. No, it's part of the whole experience. Right. So it's complex. And so... So why don't you give us, you know, not the, not the, give away the whole story, but the basic gist of the situation, in, um, of just your your coming into relationship with, um, well, just how did it happen? Who was okay? It? So I I met Oba, this Yoruba Babalao, and originally I was doing a documentary about some of his things that he ceremonial things and so we had a chance to really talk about the work and I became really interested and I started studying with him and he had a center uh, where there were dance lessons and drumming lessons and ceremonies and I was very involved in that for a couple of years the Yoruba culture is polygamous men can have more than one wife and so obviously there were different sexual connections going on that I was observing and it was in within the seemed to me within the cultural context I was open to exploring cross-cultural differences monogamy had not worked particularly well for me at that point I had been divorced a little while after an 18-year marriage and so I was asking questions about what worked and didn't work in my own marriage and saw this alternative that looked like it had some possibilities um, for a different kind of being together. So after a couple of years of being a student, we got involved with a romance that he wanted to keep secret. He was married to another woman, and it became obvious to me pretty quickly that there were other secret women besides me. So then the the whole like soap opera part of it kicks in, because I'm asking a lot of questions about, you know, how would this be in Africa? What are the rules? Um, is this really the proper way that we should be doing it? Why do we have to keep it secret if it's really what they do? And he seemed to have a lot of answers sometimes, and sometimes it didn't make any sense at all. And I went out and uh, solicited, did some research, solicited some information from other Yoruba teachers that were around that area. And um, so that's where the, the complexity uh, comes in. And we, we broke up many times and went back together. At certain points, we did reveal the relationship and tell the truth. Um, and it went on and on for many years. 
Well, it went on and on for many years. It deepened. I mean, there was real love there, real intimacy there. This isn't just, you know, hot chicks. You know, I mean, this, this was these right. were long-term I mean, it was relationships. A, it was a twelve-year relationship and really steeped in in spirit and steeped in the practice of ifa. Mm-hmm. And seeing, seeing the energies move. So, I and mean, seeing, seeing miracles, you know, healing miracles occur where people yeah. stand up from their wheelchair and dance. You know, I mean, it was powerful. And, and then the other piece is that I think is powerful about the book because you write a lot about your thought process in their book. There's not only your, you know, questioning the, your psychology around it, but your willingness to question do I feel this way just because I'm a white woman and this is what I was raised to expect? And that there's a there's a generosity and a, and a courage in being willing to say, to question, is this feeling accurate, meaning true, I guess I would say in a sense of an inner truth, or have I just been pre-programmed to feel this way? And that, that there's a lot of complexity, I think, in your journey because you were willing to say, maybe I don't know. Maybe I could learn something different. And then, of course, sometimes you found out that you were right in the first place. <laughs> right? That this really and that's does- the real learning experience. Like, you know, then finding my center. Okay. And, you know, yes, my instinct and my perception is correct. So, you know, that was a real exploration of myself. Yes. And this is this is another reason that I asked Marcia to be on the show and I would encourage people that have that have had this kind of experience or you're in a spiritual community that this kind of thing is going on to get Marcia's book and read it or just get it because it's a great story but because there there is there's so many levels of healing journey on this because you know Marcia you're your I mean I can say this because I know Marcia but you're mature enough as an adult to be able to question yourself on a lot of levels and be honest in the book and vulnerable in the book about doing it, which kind of opens the way for other people to explore the complexity of being in a robust, powerful, effective spiritual practice and how does that move us and sometimes move us out of balance where we lose a sense of our center and then how can it also bring us back? And I think that's part of the beauty of the cosmology of the, of Ifa is that while you may dance a little bit too much uh, in the realm of one Orisha, there's another Orisha that can come in and guide you back to center. Exactly. And I hope it does. I hope people are encouraged to bring issue out, essentially, and take a look at it uh, from reading my story, because that was my main intention. It's like intention, like if I need to have the courage to do this so other people can do it. And so, so what would you say now because because this is an aspect in when we work with spirit that there is an aspect of being embodied by these powerful energies and being moved by them and sometimes it, to to things that we look back later and go hmm <laughs> what was that about <laughs> but 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 my point is there uh, in 
powerful embodied spiritual practices all the way back to the great marriage in Europe all over Europe and all these things there there is a there was a, a deeper understanding of the distinction between the archetypal energy moving through me and my personal energy and so what would you say you learned about that distinction between you and the archetype and what does that mean in terms of making choices in your life well, I think I learned to discern, number one, to identify what those two were, the personal and the archetypal, I'm going to say love, uh, the sort of feeling of love, and to di- learn what they were and then to be able to distinguish one from the other in my life. And I don't think going in, I don't think I had that skill at all. And it was only through, you know, falling, making the big mistakes that I was able to learn to discern that. Yeah. And so, in other words, um, to not give too much of the book away, so an Arisha could come in and dance you and, and really seem to kind of, and you look to maybe that Arisha to sort of guide your experiences, and then at some point, several choices down the road realize, hmm, I'm feeling kind of out of balance here. But then you could recognize, oh, the shadow is behind me now. Let me bring it forward. And what can I see about myself in this place of extreme? Mm -hmm. And I thought that was Oshun, but maybe it was really Eshu. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then we see, oh, so, so, so... The shadow, then the trickster, shows me something about myself, and I realize, oh, you know, I was thinking I was making these decisions, and they were the quote-unquote right decisions based on this archetypal energy, but I realized this was my shadow making these decisions, and the archetype helped me to go there to sat. And now that I see it, now I can make new decisions, or I can find my way back to center, or... I can be more committed to this decision that I've made, you know, whatever it is. But there's this process of becoming more conscious about why we're doing what we're doing. If we are start to, if we can start to understand the distinction between being kind of compelled um, and um, what is what is ours, what are what are what is really our input into it particularly our shadow input in in other words the helping spirits lead us astray when what they're doing is leading us into our shadow so we can see it exactly and then we're we're not astray anymore now we're seeing ourselves, and now we're learning and we're hopefully growing and choosing not to make the same mistake again if it was a mistake after all and then in working with the the mythological story, like my teacher would keep pointing to, well, this is what they do in the in the myth. But ultimately, in the myth, at the end of that story is a, a learning and a redemption that the the Arisha then changes from that. And so it it's like, where are you in the story? You know, mm-hmm. are you in the middle or are you close to the end? Uh, so. You know, in working with myth in in that way, recognizing that there's the uh, you know the hero's journey, and it could be anywhere along that continuum. Well, and each each Orisha has its own hero's journey. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, so and it's, and it's this, complex. It is, but this, ladies mm-hmm. and gentlemen, is a true cosmology. 
and this is one of the things I that's a theme on the show in general is trying to help under people understand what's an actual cosmology and what's just a bunch of similarities, right? This is a real cosmology where all the teachers within the cosmology, each in and of themselves, became teachers because of their journey, and that we can look for ourselves in the story, as Marcia said, and and understand what was the fatal error in the story and what was the redemption, you know, and, and to, and to understand ourselves better through it. I did and have I'll one say, question. I'm, oh, go ahead. Oh, one thing that I, I really did learn in the process is that the person leading the ceremony at the time seems to be the one creating this uh, energy of unconditional love that is enveloping us. And I think what I learned is that the person leading the ceremony is divine, but is also a flawed human, as am I, as are all of us. But it's the technology of the ceremony itself, not the person, that causes the unconditional love feeling to be released from me, from us. That's a really important distinction. And I think... The, the the more quickly people can learn that and own that in themselves, you know, that that your love is meeting the love that's being released. You know, it's not, it's not all being given to you by the all-powerful person presiding, but that if that person is working well, they're inspiring yours to meet the energy that's being created in the group. So it's about you too. And then it's there's a large group and it's the energy coming from everyone. And so you're mm-hmm. getting this like amazing cauldron of, you know, this juicy, wonderful feeling. But it's the technology itself, not the person that causes exactly. it. Exactly. And Marcia, did you, do you think, this is, a, this is a curiosity to me because as a person who, well, anyway, <laughs> as a person who didn't get married until yes. she was 48, you know, did you get a sense of how you might know in the future when, what you what you what has been loving and intense and intimate is perhaps now simply becoming a drug i hope so i, I think that's <laughs> a hard one <laughs> yeah it is it is and a because hard one. you want that drug mm-hmm. you know so it, it's i think it's very tricky and very difficult now hopefully this experience is going to inform me and i'll i'll be able to recognize red flags when they come up that I, di- I didn't recognize before, but no guarantees. Yeah, it is a hard one. I think one of the ones that you do bring up often in the book, though, if this is all good, then why do I have to keep lying about it? That, that exactly. seems to be a pretty good red flag. Yeah. And also, if somebody wants you to keep secrets for them, they're keeping secrets from you. Yeah, for that's sure. a good one to remember. Yeah. God, these are old. These are old ideas, aren't they? Like, they just never change. <laughs> yeah, like probably Dear Abby could have told us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but this is important, again, this is important to understand because to simply try to approach a truly spiritual life in some sort of chaste way, I think that's the right word. It, it doesn't work. No, it's because the the sexual energy is what drives all of life. I mean, and it's behind creativity. It's behind how families are created. It's our passion. And we can't cut ourselves off from it. Yeah. 
Actually, you you um, you quote Oshun really beautifully. Um, Oshun says, "Sex is a force of nature. It can give you the same sense of oneness with Source as you get when you see a glorious sunset or feel the power of a waterfall. The sunset and the waterfall don't necessarily love you personally, although you are perfectly lovable." Um, and so then you ask, um, so when would I know it was authentic personal love? And Oshun says, uh, no, but on this journey, journey, you learn what is not authentic personal love. Let the river of love carry you. Somewhere in the flow, you will find real love. But whether or not you are blessed with it in this lifetime, enjoy riding my rapids. Because, of course, remember, everybody, Oshun is the river, is the river. Yeah. And that's, uh, for me, I think that that's one of the most important things to understand about the relationship between love and intimacy and sex is that these are three really important things. And if you go about your life just simply parroting back what you were taught when you were 12, that the only good sex happens when you're in love and there, and, and automatically intimacy will happen. You are going to be woefully disappointed in life (laughs) because (laughs) intimacy doesn't automatically happen. You know, love doesn't necessarily happen that these are things we have to open ourselves to. Hi, everyone. I just want to um, end the show here giving thanks to Marsha for joining us. You know, the um, Co-Creator Network is in Texas, and Texas is underwater right now. So it's probably a small technological miracle that we got the show to happen today at all as it is. So I want to thank you all to thank Marsha for the honesty and vulnerability in her book to give us all a chance to explore more deeply this experience that happens in a lot of spiritual communities. And I want to give thanks to the ancestors of Ifa. I want to give thanks to the ancestors um, who join us here today in the show that gather around us to the earth below, the sky above, and the heart that unites us all. Um, Have a great week, everyone. 